Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, we examine toaster fraud. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're going hunting for your money. Tracy Conan is a forensic accountant behind The Divorce Money Guide, a tool that helps you understand your money and uncover where money might be hiding in your divorce. She's here today to talk about what you can do to untangle the mess of marriage financials and figure out if you're the victim of financial abuse. Tracy, welcome to the toaster. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. I want to talk about fraud, Tracy. You've been doing this a long time. I want you to talk to me about the most common fraud you you have dealt with, you've discovered, uncovered, revealed uh, in, in your work on divorce cases. Can you start us out with that? Well, the most common thing that I see on divorce cases is someone spending money on an on an affair partner. You know, the the hotels, the dinners out, the jewelry that the wife didn't get the lingerie purchases, either on the secret credit card or on the family's credit card, but the spouse never looked at the statements and didn't realize that the spending was going on. That's the stuff. I thought she was going to say fraud was attorney billing. So I'm very (laughs) relieved to hear that it's good old-fashioned people having affairs and buying lingerie and dinners and hotel rooms. Well, I got got one in the family. I got a a family member whose uh, spouse had a separate, a complete separate family with kids five blocks away uh, and would go on two-week business trips back and forth. What staggers me about this, and we've talked about this before uh, with Seth, is, is how does it go or can it go for so long without somebody uncovering this kind of of fraudulent financial activity like it, there is there's a whole universe of or a fabric of uh financial infidelity like the the lies that you have to to keep up to be able to maintain that right yes and you would think that the sheer laws of numbers, laws of averages would dictate that something would go haywire, something that would reveal it at some point. But you'd be surprised how this really can go on for years. Now, in that story that you mentioned, being five blocks away, you've got to think when he's on his two-week business trip, some family member, friend has got to run into him somewhere and then run into his wife and say, hey, I just saw Bob the other day and he said, right? I mean, One of my favorite ones was my client, the wife, um, found out about the affair because the Tiffany store uh, emailed to her a receipt for the thousands of dollars bracelet that had been purchased for Valentine's Day, except she didn't get a bracelet. It was for the mistress. Mm, Seth, are you listening? (laughs) They sent it to the wrong email address. That's why I don't shop at Tiffany's anymore. There you go. Terrible data handling. (laughs) Am I right? No. So this happens all the time, Pete. And here's the problem from the litigation perspective. You have someone like Tracy who digs in and finds all these purchases. So is Tracy really digging in just to look for those? And if so, what's the cost-benefit analysis of her doing so? It's different if she's doing her job and looking at all the expenditures and reviewing credit card statements and saying, wait, what about these? Right? Because she's already in the documents. And then we find them. So what's the recourse for 
let's take the multi thousand dollar um, Tiffany's bracelet. When I go to court, I can say, Judge, I'm asking for unequal distribution, i.e., we're dividing assets and liabilities, and I want my client to get more than 50%. And here's why the husband has already spent money that should have been in the marital pie. Wow. So, Judge, he spent $4,000 on the bracelet. Now, what my client's going to say is, I want the four grand. What the judge is going to say is, I'll give you two because he was allowed to spend two grand on that any way he wanted anyway. So the worst punishment in quotes is getting it the way it should have been in the first place. There's like no added benefit or punishment. Now, sometimes the judge will hammer them on alimony or another area of the case. They just won't say what it was for, though. So, Tracy, have you seen what I'm talking about? I've seen what you're talking about now. I'm going to play the part of the client. Seth, what do judges do about this? How likely am I, get, am I going to be to get my money? I'm going to win on this, right? Nope. Right? It's a hard battle. And then how much are you going to spend my time going to get the four grand, which is only going to be two grand, and then we hope that we get that money on attorney's fees. Now, I think every little nugget helps. But people think that like this is the smoking gun that's just going to rule the day, and it just doesn't. I like to tell clients that when I'm approaching these financial issues and looking for evidence of things like this, I like to take a pro- an approach of death by a thousand cuts. How many things can we find that are going to discredit your soon-to-be ex-spouse? Because you're making allegations and trying to get certain things in this. And if we can find multiple ways to prove that they lied about the income, and we can prove it three different ways, or we can find multiple instances of your spouse failing to disclose things, whereas you have been forthcoming with things, you might be able to gain some advantage in litigation there. But when it comes to getting money back on affair stuff, it's hard, especially, Seth, I know you know this, when it comes to meals out. We can't prove who was at that meal, right? Exactly. Yeah, whether it's the other spouse or another, yeah, another relationship, another affair. And I think Tracy's analysis of death by a thousand cuts is an excellent one. When you go in and say, not credible, not credible, look, judge, look, judge, but that just creates a void. And then you have to come in and fill it and say, here are the real numbers. And so it's a two-step process. One is discrediting. Because ultimately, the judge has to make a decision and wants to know what the, what they can rely on to make that decision. So when you discredit one, that's not enough. You still have to back it up with what you believe the true numbers are. And of course, they're going to come and say, well, Tracy, did you carry the one? Did you forget about the tax benefit of having a child? And what about you had the tax calculation as single, but isn't she going to be head of household because she has the children more than 50% of the time? So you got to dot your I's and cross your T's to make sure that your presentation of the numbers can now be relied on after you've discredited the other side. Wow. Yeah, that's absolutely true. One of the parts that I really like about my job is working on strategy with the attorney. So I'm going to be saying, Seth, here are the numbers I came up with. Let me tell you how I came up with these numbers. I had to make some estimates and newsflash people, sometimes we have to make estimates because we have gaps in the data. 
here's how I came up with my estimates. And this is the result. But if I'm on the other side, here's where I'm going to attack. So we start talking strategy about what is the attack going to be? How are we going to you know, counteract that and things like that? And that's what a client should be asking their lawyer. Why do I need a forensic accountant? What are they going to do for me? And what's the return on my investment? Now, in my office, my answer is pretty simple. For the work that I need done, I need someone to be able to testify to it. And it will take the emotion out. And you testifying, you're not going to be the best witness on this. Second, they're going to be handling all the financial data and then reviewing it with me. And though you're going to feel like that's a double bill, they can do it quicker and less expensive in their shop than I can in my shop. So I'm outsourcing it. It will cost you less. But then I have a witness, which is positive for us. And I say, here's the only time that it's going to feel like it's more. Any document you send to the forensic accountant, I want a copy and we're going to put it in our file because I don't want to be told, I provided the document to Tracy and Tracy say, I never got the document from your client. So I need to make sure. And if anything happens to Tracy, I need to know what's been provided and what's not. So that's one little added expense. The other thing the client should say, well, what happens when you guys are talking to each other? Do you both bill me? And the answer is yes. Because we're both working on your case in trying to figure out how to present the evidence. Now, Tracy's wagging her finger at me like most people do. I know. You're about to get scolded. Let me get some popcorn. Go ahead. I'm wagging my finger because, Seth, I do all of my cases on fixed fees. So my clients get to call me and they don't get charged hourly for it. You and I talk. I don't charge the client hourly for it. There we go. Tracy's different. There's a deal. All right. I, I want to talk about, uh, though, just maybe you guys can square me on uh, assumptions. It, is fraud, this sort of financial fraud found in uh, certain divorce cases more than others, high net worth, low net worth, or, or is fraud just the great equalizer? I get asked that question a lot, and it's a hard one to answer because what I see in the divorce world is not representative of the entire population. When cases come to me, they already are pretty certain that there is fraud. So that's what I'm seeing over and over. I would say anecdotally, being out there in the world and talking to people, I think actually there's a pretty pretty even instance of fraud across all income levels when it comes to the divorce situation. And I think in a lot of cases, what we have is not necessarily fraud, but we have simply a suspicious spouse. We are getting divorced. I don't trust you anymore. I want to know what's been happening with the money. When you think about these cases, and I'm putting myself in the in the frame of somebody who who might be looking at a divorce, how do I know that there's a potential or how what, what might make me su- uh, suspicious that there's fraud going on in my divorce? Are there are there signals I should be looking out for from my spouse hiding things? What are the kinds of things you see when people are using finances against one another or hiding from one another? We call these red flags of fraud. Okay. They are the signs that you might have something terrible going on with the money. And I have a laundry list of them that I can identify after working for so many years in this area. Some of the most common ones that I see in the divorce arena include a change in behavior. So your spouse is uh, potentially changing when they're coming and going or how protective they are over their phone or what information they allow you to have access to. That's the big one for me is ask for the bank statement, ask for the passwords, ask to review 
the tax return before it's filed. Ask for the credit card statements. Ask for your 401k and IRAs. And if they're reluctant to give that to you, there's a problem. And what I get a lot of, and I'm sure Tracy deals with this as well, is people come to us through no fault of their own. Because when you're married, you break up the responsibility of running the household, having raising kids, getting people to and from, who's going to pay the bills. We both don't need to be online paying the bills. Like It just gets divided. And years go by, and the real, then you realize, I just swiped the credit card. I don't know if it's getting paid. So in litigation, we're going to get those documents. I can get them directly from the credit card company. I can get them through discovery, through mandatory disclosures, all these legal words that we've talked about with over years, Pete. But we'll find it. Do not let yourself be embarrassed or paralyzed that you don't know it now. That's part of our job. According to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. It's stunning. We talk about this every week, and I just, I, it, I never adjust to it. Just what an alarming statistic that is. And that's why uh, we have a fantastic partner in Soberlink. We all want to make sure that children are safe with sober parents and maintain great relationships with both parents. And the thing that that statistic doesn't tell you, it's probably higher in divorce cases. Yeah. Because alcoholism is one reason that people get divorced. So when you're dealing with a divorce, you may be accused of overindulging, of drinking too much, of being an alcoholic. Put any term that you want to put on it, it might be coming your way. And you might have to defend yourself. Well, how do you do that? Do you do that with Soberlink? Independent, real-time, third-party verification. You blow into a little device. It takes a little picture of you that can only be used in court. It's not going to get on there on social media. And you can say, judge, look, here's the results. I was not drinking when I had my children. I'm focused on them. I'm focused on sobriety. I'm just focused on showing you that it's not true. That's what Soberlink's all about. That's right. You can get two different devices. One of them is a device that connects to your phone uh, via Bluetooth and uses your phone to relay your real-time uh, breathalyzer data and facial recognition data. The other is cellular. You don't need to worry about a phone in the U.S., and it will send you uh, send your data right where it needs to be when you need to prove that you are sober. Uh, we love it. The courts love it. Keeps the focus on the best interests of the child. That is the most important part. You can get $50 off your device when you sign up via Soberlink.com slash toaster. That's Soberlink.com slash toaster. Thank you to Soberlink for sponsoring this show. You talk about behavior. I mean, this is that's another one of those red flags. I, it just hits me that one of the reasons that our case in the family was discovered is because the the now former spouse was changing credit card numbers often. Uh, was, oh, yeah, I just need to change this, uh, you know, whatever cable auto bill credit card. And it, they had a number of credit cards that seemed to be changing often for whatever reason, points, the, any any sort of. Uh, but it, it started happening with great frequency. And that was one of those behavior changes that they came back to and found. Certainly changes in how one spends money or manages the money is a huge, huge red flag. Like a great example is uh, we never went to the ATM a whole lot. Maybe once a month, we each went to the ATM just to have a little bit of cash in our pocket. 
And now all of a sudden, the spouse is going to the ATM three times a week and taking out three, four, five hundred dollars at a time. And we don't know where that money is going. I will tell you that in the vast majority of divorce cases, A, they don't need a forensic accountant. I like to say 95% of people in divorces probably don't need a forensic accountant. But in almost all of those cases, wherever there is fraud, almost all of the frauds would have been caught early on if the spouse had been looking at bank statements and credit card statements because there are telltale signs there. The hardest part, Pete, is finding fraud when your spouse is in a business that they own that is a cash business. That's a lot harder because what Tracy's saying, I think, is exactly accurate. If you're a W-2 employee, you work for a company, they send you a paycheck, they send you a W-2 at the end of the year, it gets direct deposited. It's easy to trace that money if you're looking at your bank statements. You look at your credit card statements and they're like, oh, we just paid the credit card. It matches up 1500 bucks this month, whatever the case may be. But when they're taking money out of the till in a privately held company, or if they are running personal expenses through the business credit card that you don't see, that is a lot harder. And unless you're involved in that business or you're reviewing those financials all the time in detail, it can be a lot tougher. So Tracy, what do you do on situations like that? Well, you're right. It's really hard. I have cases with the plumber, the landscaper, the auto repair guy, these guys who are giving their customers discounts for paying in cash, and then the cash is disappearing into thin air. What we look for is other ways to prove that there is income. One of the things I can do is what's called a lifestyle analysis, looking at the spending of an individual to try to add up how much they're spending on a monthly basis, and does that make sense in light of what they're reporting on the tax return or some financial statements for income? That's one way. Another way is looking for creative ways to prove that there is income to a business, maybe not even cash income. You know, I've seen manufacturing businesses where the divorce is filed and suddenly, oopsie, we've lost a bunch of customers. Look, sales are down. How can we find a way to prove that there is a, uh, the volume of business hasn't decreased? Got two examples for you. One, a cash type of business, a laundromat. Divorce was filed. Husband says, oh gosh, you know, there's a, been some changes in the neighborhood. There's been street construction. People can't get to the laundromat. Look, business is down. We thought it through. We did a subpoena to the water company. Lo and behold, Water usage, same levels as always. We know the income has not gone down. Another business, manufacturing business. Oh gosh, things have changed. We've lost a bunch of customers. We didn't know how we were going to prove that they were still making money. We saw that the payroll never went down. And, and we asked the question, well, why isn't payroll going down if your production's going down? Didn't get a real good answer. We subpoenaed FedEx records, found that they were shipping just as much as they always have. And there's a syndrome for this. Pete, it's called TDII, Temporary Decrease in Income Syndrome. It, it, it <laughs> impacts anyone going through a divorce that's not going to be honest about it. <laughs> TDII, is there is there help for that, Seth? I mean, how could I possibly get a cure? Yeah, you talk to your lawyer who's honest and say, play it straight. I, I want to 
I, I want to pivot a little bit because I know so much about uh, what you do, Tracy, is is about giving people uh, who are going through this agency to un- to to better understand what they're going through themselves, how to defend themselves against financial fraud. And, uh, you know, you're going to talk a little bit about what some of the tools that you've created. I'm curious your take on the levels to which one can and should go if they suspect this kind of financial fraud before bringing in an expert or the legal team, is there a, like is there a, a a point where there is risk to self to do this, or is it is it just good money smarts anytime? I'm going to give you the answer that any good attorney would give you, even though I'm not an attorney. Oh, Thank God I don't have to answer it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is it depends. Oh. No, that's exactly what he would have said. Of course. God. Oh, and check your jurisdiction. Yeah, I got I got him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, or talk to your attorney about that. Talk to your attorney about that. Here's what I recommend to people. If you have some serious concerns about what's been going on with the money, do what you can to gather information quietly. That means if you have legal access to bank and credit card accounts, download those statements. Download, uh, uh, get a copy of your own credit report. Don't get your spouse's because you can't legally without their permission. But start gathering the tax returns, the things that you have on hand. Don't tip your spouse off that you have some concerns. And just start going through them. Just start looking through them and see if there are things that cause you concern. That's sort of like the base level of doing it. Don't, Don't cause a big problem yet. Let's just start gathering information. Just educate yourself. We've talked about that before, Seth, right? Absolutely. Step one, get educated. And don't beat yourself up that you aren't educated at this point. So that freezes a lot of people. They they don't want to uncover that rock. They don't want to pick up that rock and look underneath because they're going to find a bunch of worms. You might. But it's better to know they're there and let's deal with them. And as opposed to just leaving them there and lamb fester and who knows what's going to happen next. Well, so that's step one is educate yourself. Step, step two, let's assume you find some filth under the rock. What's step two? Step two is, is the talk to your attorney step. Because if you are thinking about a forensic accountant being involved, your attorney has to be on board with the concept. There are cases where I've had a client call me, talk to me on the phone, tell me their story. I say, okay, this this might be a case that needs me. I'd like to talk to your attorney next. They hook me up with their attorney and the attorney says, no, we do not need a forensic accountant. Here's what's at stake. Here's what we've already uncovered. It's going to be a big waste of money. We've got to have all be of one mind that it's the right step to take. So it's talk to your attorney, show them what you found and talk through, okay, if this fraud that I may have found really exists, do we have recourse? How would we go about it? How much is it going to cost us? Does it make sense to escalate it and bring in an expert? And that's why if I'm doing that analysis, Pete, part of what I'm doing is, is there other things the expert can do in the case that will lead to them finding the fraud as opposed to just hiring them to look for the fraud? Oh, okay. So beyond investigation. Right. If you're going to do a standard of living analysis and look back at the statements for the last two years and say, Here's what I think you guys spend on a monthly basis when you average it on a monthly basis, right? You pay your taxes once a year, boom, property taxes, we're going to average that out per month. Well, when they're going to go do that and look at all your finances for two years, they might uncover the fraud. But at least I'm having them work to do that analysis. Now, why do I want that analysis done? Because it's a 12-year marriage and we're looking for alimony, okay? 
if there is a business that needs to be valued for the division of assets, and so I need a business valuation done, then I might hire the forensic accountant to do the business valuation and say, you know, while you're at it, start looking around. So, you know, you might have them do something else that will lend themselves to doing the investigative work because that's the work they have to do to do the real work that you're asking them to do. So it's almost a side benefit as opposed to saying, just start looking through the statements. Okay. Listening to you guys talk about this and I'm thinking, oh, I might have financial issues in my case. I guess I'll, I'll, of course, I'll need a forensic accountant, but this is the old, like, if all I have is a hammer, every problem's a nail, right? Like, how do I know if, uh, if I should be having the forensic accountant conversation with my attorney? How many divorces end up needing the services, uh, uh, your services, Tracy? Like, do you, do you have a sense for the, the balance? I think Seth is better. The one answering that because... Yeah, because all of your cases need a forensic accountant. Right. When they come to me, someone's already determined that they need a forensic accountant. So Seth... Pete would, hates it when someone says Seth is better at anything. So thank you for that, Tracy. Ring the bell, Pete. So I would actually broaden that question, Pete. I think every potential client and every client should be asking their lawyer, what, if any, experts in my case do we think we need? Don't just limit to a forensic accountant. But that's a that's a statement or a question that in a conversation that should be had up front. Now, as you get into a case and you realize, shockingly, that your client didn't tell you everything about them, only about the other side, and then more stuff comes to light, and I'm like, whoa, we might need a expert. Let's say there's some issues with a parent that we no one's talked about alcoholism, and now we have a parent who got drunk driving, and so now we have to talk about getting an expert on alcoholism and using Soberlink that sponsors this show, right? That's something that might come up during the litigation while I'm representing them, because in family law, it's shifting sands. Every day is different. Things change. Behaviors change. What How things impact kids. Maybe there's a job change that we didn't see coming, or they lose their job. Well, was that done voluntarily? Is there a side deal? Mm, cut my salary. Say that we don't have as much work. What's really happening here? Get the text messages. There's like all these different things you should be looking at. So I'd brought in the question. I would have the conversation very early on and then update that conversation throughout the representation. Tracy, 8 a.m. day one. So your, your partner comes to you and says, I want a divorce. What do you do? You start gathering the information, which we already talked about. And you start figuring out how to protect yourself. If you are in a position where you have been a stay-at-home parent, you start thinking about finding a source of income, getting a job. You think about getting a credit card in your name only. You think about a bank account in your name only. That credit card and that bank account are going to be your protection and security that you're going to have some access to money going forward. That is not the way I would have answered that question, Pete. Oh, do tell. 8 a.m., make yourself a mimosa because it's in the morning and celebrate. It's about damn time. Maybe a Bloody Mary. If you would have said 5 p.m., I would have picked a different drink. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Fair play. All that All right. stuff Tracy said is 100% accurate. And I think the other thing is if you're employed, and you want to talk to your lawyer about this stuff, but if you're employed, you're allowed to direct that paycheck to wherever account you want. You can start putting in your own account so you know that you have access to funds and your spouse isn't going to go in there and just take it all. You're going to disclose it. You're going to you know, lay out where it's been spent, what came in, where it went out, all that stuff. 
if you have a spouse that you are terrified is going to take all the money out of the account and try to starve you financially through this litigation, go to the joint bank account, take half of it out, put it in your own account. You're going to account for it, but it will give you some financial security. I was going to ask you that question, Seth. I know I'm not supposed to be interviewing you, but I was going to ask you what you think about that because I get that question a lot. We have some money sitting in our account. I don't work. My husband does. If he pulls that money out of that account, I will have nothing. And I don't know how I'm going to get an apartment or things like that. Now, let's just say I'm going to say there's $20,000 in that account. Should the person leave that joint account alone because we're all just going to trust the money stays there? Nope. Should that person take half of the money out? At least. Or should they take all of it out knowing that the worst thing that happens is, A, they have to account for all the money and potentially owe half of it back to their spouse later? The last one's it depends. <laughs> oh. So. At least we got there. Here's why. Yeah, well, you know, we're going to get there yeah, eventually. We got Come there. on, we just yeah. met. Here's the reason it depends on the last one. And it's really on the second one where I said, yes, take half. If this is an account where you have regular reoccurring automatic withdrawals, you don't want to take it all out and then not have the mortgage paid. True, true. Or your kids' education paid or their extracurricular paid or their health insurance paid. So you need to be aware of what's happening there. That's usually from a checking account, not a savings account. If it's a savings account, you're pretty much safe that, look, Take it at least half. I would usually say take half, but I'm also going to look at how much is in the account and what is your burn rate? How much are you spending a month if they totally cut you off? And I would do that analysis. And if you know it, if you're just guesstimating, we'll go with a guesstimate. But if there's 20 grand in there and your burn rate is $10,000 a month and you're afraid he's going to cut you off, I'm going to say take 20 grand. You got 60 days. If your burn rate is $1,000 a month, I'm going to say take 10, leave the other 10, now we've got 10 months. And if you don't know, we can take half, but we can just figure it out from there. But there are certainly cases where someone just tries to starve the other person out and not give them access to attorneys or health insurance. Like It's amazing what people will do to try to force people into a settlement just to be done. Well, on on that uh, glorious note of humans' goodwill, uh, I, Tracy, we we got to talk a little bit about the divorce money guide. First of all, when before we started talking, you switched to a uh, another screen that looks like you're working on uh, the next generation of the divorce money guide. Tell us a little bit about what you have uh, what you have going on and how you help people. The divorce money guide is my online handbook that helps people with uh, do-it-yourself forensic accounting, basically. I know they're not going to become forensic accountants, but it walks them through a very simple 10-step process to get those bank and credit card statements and tax returns, to organize them, to look for important things in them that will help them know what their money has been spent on and determine if there's been any fraud. The book that you mentioned, that's what I showed you, is Divorce Money Guide Light. It is kind of an introduction to the whole process of taking control of your financial situation in divorce. The Divorce Money Guide is for anyone, men or women. The book, Find Me the Money, is for women. How is it for women? How, why can't I use it? 
You could. I think that you might not appreciate the book as much because it is the story of a woman getting divorced and the experience that she's having with the financial aspects of the divorce and managing all of that. And so you may come away from reading that book feeling like we were beating up on men. <laughs> okay. I'm in. All right. Yeah, I'll take it. I found it to be good advice for all the men out there is not to defend the male race. When you do that, you're going to be okay. If you defend the male race when you're talking to a woman, bad idea. Well, I think the other piece is that I think we do better having these conversations in a way that is not gendered. And because that level of awareness, even if I read the book and find that I am being, like I say I take away that I'm being beaten up on, the truth of the matter is, if I feel that way, it's because I feel that way. And that's only me. I get to own that. But it doesn't change the fact that having that awareness is it, is going to serve me. And I think I'm, I'm with Seth. Uh, you know, better to have a less gendered conversation and at least be aware of what the other side is going through. Jokes aside on the men versus women, I work much more frequently with women. I find that, you know, even as far along as society has come, it is still more often the woman who is the stay-at-home parent who is lacking control over the finances. And so my audience for the Divorce Money Guide has naturally gravitated to be mostly women. When I was coming up with the concept for the book, I made a conscious decision to write it from the point of view of a woman who is in this position, the divorce, because I felt that that's what my audience would find most relatable. Totally fair. Totally fair. And I just, I, I, think it's fantastic and everybody should read it no matter what you think <laughs> so uh a divorce money guide uh where do you want to send people uh can give us the website where you want to send people to learn more about more about your uh, about your tools i'm gonna send them to fraudcoach.com forward slash toaster <gasps> so you can have yes your listeners have their own special page that they are going to go to we've arrived you have <laughs> in the world of fraud so we're making progress <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. Fraudcoach.com slash toaster. We'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you so much, Tracy. You're fantastic. So glad we got to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. It was really great fun talking to both of you. She had to hesitate on that. You see that? She's like really fun to talk. Yeah. Oh, she made a decision. She yeah, made a decision. She She's not telling us which one, but she did make a decision. All right. Yeah, she well, did. this has been great. Tracy Conan, fraudcoach.com slash toaster. We sure appreciate you teaching us some more. And with that, we have a listener question today, so we're going to go answer that right now. Seth, we have a listener, uh, an anonymous listener question, and this is on, I think, is this one of your favorite subjects? I'm so excited to watch you get the chills on the back of your neck when I talk to you about quadros. Qualified domestic relations orders. Awesome. Look at him. He's fired up already. Here we go. Let's Ex get Matt Lundy back on the show. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, Ex-husband died in sleep at 53 post-dissolution pre-quadro. The estate started out representing our two children who are now both adults. I tried to keep the kids out of the legal because trauma of dad passing. 16-year-old daughter found him, mm. did unsuccessful CPR, 17-year-old son away at college. The estate is going for half my pension. Are my kids entitled to my pension. Um, now, I know this is the, the, this, the listener writes, this is state of California, and it doesn't directly involve divorce as written. So, uh, first of all, incredible condolences. I'm so, so sorry 
for that story. Uh, that is very, very hard. Seth, what do you think? Just traumatizing on the kids. It's horrible. So Quadros, Qualified Domestic Relations Order, are governed under federal law. So that part of this question really should be answered by a Quadro attorney. I'm familiar with them, but as we've had Matt Lundy on the show, we give our quadros out to Matt because he does it every day, and it's very specialized niched. I'm a little confused by the question because what I think I'm reading into the question is that her quadro or her retirement plan was the one being quadroed over to her former spouse who's now deceased. And if that's the case, then his estate would be going after half the pension. You know, it's interesting you would say that because it looks like anonymous listener uh, submitted the question twice. And uh, so uh, let me just read this additional two lines here because that might impact your answer. I don't know. My ex passed away post-dissolution, pre-quadro. His estate is represented by his family, who are representing our children, who were not adults at the time of death, but are both adults now. They're trying to get half my pension. Is that possible? Okay. Um, that that clears it up a little bit. Okay. So, it's an interesting question, which I would talk to a quadro attorney about, and I would also check your local jurisdiction, because you said this was the state of California where I do not practice law. It would seem to me is in our final judgments, we do something called reserving jurisdiction, which is reserving power for the judge to enter the order to divide that asset. So even though the asset hadn't been divided yet, as in the quadro hadn't gone through and they don't have a data segregation when they split it, my gut tells me is that asset would be part of the estate and then the estate would distribute it pursuant to the former spouse's will or trust. So there's a couple different steps here, and this is horrific to have to deal with because ultimately, if it's her pension, it would be going to her and then to her children if there was some left, but maybe it's just going directly out. I would also check with a tax attorney because if it's going to your children, because it was supposed to be his through the divorce, there might be some tax benefits to them getting it now. Um, that doesn't alleviate the fact that you don't get it. But in the divorce, it was probably already divided. I don't know if that's the answer they wanted. And I typically tell people, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But there's like three different areas of law here. Quadros, which is federal, potentially tax, and then the divorce. So a lot of things work in there. Okay. Well, thank you, listener, for submitting the question, for trusting us to handle the question and to point you in a, in a direction in your local jurisdiction. We appreciate you. And thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. We sure appreciate your time and attention. Don't forget, you can find the show. Uh, just visit HowToSplitAToaster.com, and you can ask your own question by clicking the I Have a Question button. And uh, you can fill out a form just like our anonymous listener did. And you could be anonymous, too, or share your name. We don't care. We'll call you whatever you want. But we're just glad to have the questions. We're glad to have you listening. Thank you very much. On behalf of Tracy Conan, fantastic forensic accountant, and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. 
Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, how to split a toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.